Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Josh Gibson? Anybody ever heard of Josh Gibson? Raise your hand. No, nah, not that one. Not a guitar player. He was a baseball player. I know we're about into the end of the World Series. It's like the Rangers may wrap it up. Don't ever know about that. But this baseball player played from 1930 to 1946. And when he was 19 years of age, he hit 75 home runs. Now, I look today, and the most home runs up to this point in the major leagues was 73. Now, you might not know this name because he mostly played in the Negro League back when whites and blacks didn't play in the same league. Now, you may think, well, you know, maybe it was a Negro League, so it wasn't so difficult. But I found out that the Negro League played the white team, and typically the Negro League would win 3-1 to one on average. So it's interesting, it's interesting uh, the statistics about this person because if it's true, and I believe it is, he has the most home runs of any person in, in baseball. I was thinking about that and thinking about, you know, names like Josh Gibson, other names that you may know of of famous people and uh, are, are actually infamous, infamous people, uh, people not well known. And uh, we think about the accomplishments people make in life. And it's easy to forget some folks. It's easy to forget. Sometimes we focus on, and rightly so, like Moses, you know, in the Old Testament. We've gone through, we're going through Exodus. Easy to focus on uh, Adam. We talk about Adam a lot, of course, Genesis. We talk about David a lot, Abraham, Solomon. We've been talking about Solomon for the last several months. And naturally so. But it's easy to forget some of these well, less, less known people. And we forget that in the New Testament, the Bible, the Bible that people had in the New Testament was the Old Testament. What, what Paul instructed Timothy to study, of course, wasn't the New Testament because of the New Testament hadn't been written yet. It was the Old Testament. That's why we spend time in both the Old and the New. I've shared with you many times, my professor in, of Old Testament said, you cannot understand the cries of Calvary until you grasp the thunderings of Mount Sinai. If you read, the, you read through the New Testament, you will not, you cannot understand it. I'll say exactly. You cannot understand fully the New Testament unless you have a grasp of the Old Testament. Why would Jesus come? He came because Adam sinned. Why did he have to sacrifice himself as a perfect lamb of God? Because that was what the Old Testament did in their sacrificial system all the way through the Old Testament, of course, starting there in Exodus, even before that in Genesis. So all the things that we see in the New Testament, Testament in, in, in likeness is seen in shadow in the Old Testament. I, go all, I say all these things to say it's good every once in a while that we go to these more obscure letters of the Bible, these more obscure books of the Bible, so that we understand them because... Just because they're smaller and just because we don't talk about them as much does not mean they're not important. Because the Bible tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
that goes from Genesis to Revelation, every bit of it. Now, some of it is a lot harder to understand. Trust me, I know. <laughs> One of my most difficult classes that I took in Bible college was on the Minor Prophets. And why was it difficult? Because I really didn't know a whole lot about the Minor Prophets. But that semester, I learned a whole lot about the Minor Prophets, especially quiz time. He would ask questions I never even thought about. But I, I, learned, how to, I learned real quick about the Minor Prophets. So tonight, I want to begin a study on three books, starting with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So tonight, we're going to focus on Ezra. But we're not going to go to Ezra first. To get to Ezra, you need to go to 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 1. To understand Ezra, you have to figure out the fall and captivity of Judah. About 722 B.C., the northern kingdom went into captivity because of their sin. But about 529 B.C., we see the captivity of Judah. And we read about it in 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 1. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all the hosts against Jerusalem, and pitched against it. And they built forts against against it round about, and the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broke up, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls, which is the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about, and the king went that, the way towards the plain. The army of the Chaldees pursued after the king and overtook the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with fetters of brass, and carried him to Babylon. In the fifth month, the seventh day of the month, which is the nineteenth year, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, serving the king of Babylon unto Jerusalem. And he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the house of Jerusalem and every great man's house burnt he with fire. And the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about and the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away the king of Babylon, the remnant of the multitude did Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carry away. But the captain of the guard left of the poor of the land, the vine dressers and husbandmen, the pillars of brass over the house of the Lord and the, bra and the, bra and the bases and the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord to the Chaldeans break in pieces and carry the brass of them to Babylon. The pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the spoons and the vessels of brass wherein they ministered took they away. And the fire pans and the bowls and such things were of gold and the gold and silver and silver and captain the guard took away. Verse 16, the two pillars, one sea and the brass which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the brass of all the vessels was without weight, and the height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and the, cap, and the capitur upon it was brass, and the height of the capitur three cubits, and the wreathen work, and the pomegranates, and the capitur round about, and all brass, and likened to these, and had the second pillar with wreathen work. And the captain of the guard took Sherai, the sh chief priest, and the Sephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door, and out of the city he took an officer that was set over the men of war, and five men of them that were in the king's presence were found in the city, and the principal scribe of the host, and they which mustered the people of a land, three score men of the people of a land that were found in the city. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, took these and brought them the king of Babylon to Ribla. And the king of Babylon smote them and slew them at Ribla in the hand of Hamath. So Judah was carried away out of the land. So even though God sent prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah who warned them of this judgment that was coming, they still, with one voice, shouted down the prophets, even Jeremiah, as he said. Thus began 70 years of captivity that God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah. <coughs> you say, why 70? 70 years of captivity happened because of their disobedience to keep the Sabbath rest. According to Leviticus chapter 25, every seventh year, they were supposed to give the land a year of rest. But from Eli until this time, they did not do that. That was 490 years divided by seven is what? 70. That's why they spent 70 years in captivity. You think God doesn't see the small stuff that's going on in your life. You think, you think, you think that little thing you do was that, 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 that's not that big a deal. Oh, my friend, my friend, if he remembers the Sabbath, and calculates, calculates it to the year. Don't you think he knows what's going on in our life? Three principles I want to give you tonight. Number one, if I can get this to work. Well, this is kind of the captivity of Judah. You can see where they went, kind of a map of it, from Israel over to Babylon. First, first principle, when you disobey God, you become playing a game you'll never win. When you disobey God, you begin playing a game you'll never win. You have physical relationships before marriage, adultery during marriage, that's a game you cannot win. You watch pornography, it's a game you cannot win. You claim to climb up the corporate ladder and abandon your family along the way, it's a game you're going to lose. Israel thought they could ignore, ignore Jeremiah. Canton. They thought they could, they thought they could ignore uh, uh, Isaiah. No, kids, you think you can ignore your parents. You can't. If you disobey God, it is a game you will always lose. You will always lose. That's what's going on here. Judgment. Judgment. Seventy years is over. They've been in the land of Babylon. It's coming towards to an end. And just like God said they're going to spend 70 years in judgment, they're going to come out exactly when God said they were. Nebuchadnezzar was the king, but Nebuchadnezzar would have a son named Belshazzar. And one night he would have a feast, and he would use the instruments, he would use the, the cups and the bowls and the platters that were taken out of the temple out of, uh, from, uh, of the Jews. He would use the Jewish slaves, and ultimately God himself would judge Babylon, and he would use another country to do so. We read about it in Daniel chapter 5, verse, verse 18. We would literally see what we read about the handwriting on the wall. And these are the words of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5, verse 18. O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father the kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. For the majesty he gave them all, gave him all people, nations and language, and trembled and feared before him that he, was, that he would uh, slew and, and he would 
would kept alive and whom he would set up and whom he would put down. And when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he disposed him uh, from the king throne and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast and dwelling as the wild asses. And they fed him with grass like the oxen. And the body was wet with the dew of the heaven till he knew that the most high God ruled in the kingdom of men and he that appointeth over it whomsoever he will. But thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart. Thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of the house before thee. And thou and thy lords, thy wives, thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast, not, thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and brass and iron and wood and stone, which see, thee, see not, nor hear, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is and whose all thy ways hast thou glorified. Now thou was not glorified. Then wast thou part of the hand sent from him, and the writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Many, many, tickle you farson. This is the interpretation of the thing. Many, God hath numbered the kingdom and finished it. Tickle, thou hast weighed the balance and are found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then the commandment commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, and put a chain about his neck, and made proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the, of the kingdom. And that night, Belshazzar, the king of Chaldeans, was slain. Belshazzar thought he could get away with it. Belshazzar thought, nobody can touch me in my kingdom. I can do what I want. And that's the height of arrogance. But we struggle with the same thing. God will never see. God will never know. God will never hear. Oh, dear friend, God knows. God sees and God cares. So, 539 B.C., the Babylon Empire was crushed by the Persian Empire. Cyrus the king was sovereign all over it. Now, as the Jews, Jewish slaves, there's need for renewal and discovered a captivity. Just the prodigal son went to that land with a pig pen so the nation of Israel comes to its senses and finally, while in captivity, realizes its need to come back home. And we read in Ezra chapter 1, if you want to turn there, Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 3. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 3. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. So after 70 years of chastisement, God now moves to restore and renew his people. He begins to work in their life and bring them back. And that's what God is continually trying to do. He's continually trying to renew us. He's continually trying to bring his people to a place of repentance. He's doing, he did that with Israel. He tries to do that. He's trying to do that with America. He's trying to do that with every person because he wants every person to be saved. Erwin Lutzer, the great preacher, wrote about Great Britain. He said, when Great Britain was spiraling downward in moral and spiritual decline, when the par British Parliament sometimes had to disband at midday because the members were too, trunk, too drunk to continue deliberations. The children worked in factories, rejected God raised up John Wesley to preach the forgotten gospel and revival of the 18th century transformed society. When God wanted the Israelites back to himself, he did not reform their housing or transportation. 
He did not make the Persians love righteousness. He did not require Cyrus to decree the Ten Commandments were binding on all Persia. Of course, like Constantine did many years later, trying to make a Christian nation. No, he began the renewal by refocusing the time and energy on his own people, by encouraging them to love God again, to renew their worship for God. And that's, all, and that's, that's really what God wants all of us to do. Because what is worship? Worship is when we focus our eyes, our mind, our thoughts on God. And every day, not just on Sunday during a worship service, every day you and I should take time to worship God. You say, preacher, I'm too busy. Dear friend, if you're too busy to worship God, you're too busy. Take time. Turn the TV off. Turn the radio off. Nothing matters as much as your worship to God. That is your first and foremost relationship. If you say, well, I can't do it in the morning, then do it, in the, do it, in the, do it later. If you can't do it later, do it, do, it, do, it, do it before you go to bed. But sometime during the day, take time to open this book and pray and talk to God and have a time of worship. It's so important that we do. C.S. Lewis wrote, the Christians have largely ceased to think of the next world as a result have become ineffective in this world. So let's read the first verse there in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. Now in the first year of the king Cyrus, of Cyrus king of Persia and the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the, the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia that he made a proclamation throughout the, all the kingdom and put it also in writing. This word stirred up means to arouse to action, to open one's eyes. The idea is to help someone realize their great need before it's too late. We see it in Psalm chapter 108, verse 2, about musical instrument tuned up or warmed up before playing. God's about to restore his people. He promised to do so after, after 70, 70 years. So we see in verse 2, Thus Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house, in Jerusalem, which is Judah, whosoever whoever there is among you of all this people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is Judah, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He's a God who's in Jerusalem and every survivor in what place he may live. Let the man that place report him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with the freewill offering for the, for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. You say, well, did, did, did Cyrus become a Christian? Well, it's interesting. They found uh, some, some inscriptions about Cyrus uh, in uh, some work that was done over there, some exclamations that were done over there. They said it was found that they wrote, Marduk scanned all the, the country searching for the righteous ruler when he pronounced the name of Cyrus. Marduk, the great lord, a protector of the people, beheld the pleasure of Cyrus' good deeds and therefore ordered him march against the city of Babylon. All the inhabitants of Babylon, as well as the entire country, bowed to Cyrus and kissed his feet. With shining faces, they worshipped his name. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, king of Babylon, king of the four rims of the earth. So what happens? God can use even pagans. God can use even pagans. You see it all around. Because ultimately, it's God himself that raises up kings. And God himself that puts down kings. It's hard for us to understand that and grasp that. 
But as God is doing all these things, he's working, as I've mentioned so many times, four or five or maybe 25 steps past what you and I can even imagine. But he's working in the hearts of even pagan kings to proclaim his glory to the world. So he what? He did with Nebuchadnezzar. So he's doing now this with Cyrus. I don't know if, if Cyrus ever came to know God, but I know God used him in a great way. It's an interesting thing, though. You could, people could come to church, have the right Bible, have the right suit, dress the, dress the right way, and still not know God. It's not, it's not so much what you look like. It's what's in your heart. What's in your heart? Do you know God in your heart? Many years, up to 17 years of age, I'd come to church. My parents would say, you know, I was from South Carolina, so they'd say, wear your Sunday best. Wear, dress up. I dressed up. I sang on a platform. Dressed up, sang on a platform. I didn't know God. I don't know God. And how many people are in the churches all around the world, the world today? Dressed up, wearing, driving, taking their Bible, thinking they know God. But someday, if they don't get saved, they're going to stand before Jesus Christ, and he will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, informs us that Cyrus was actually shown as a prophecy by the Jewish prophet that was predicted some 150 years before the birth of Cyrus. So 150 years before the birth of Cyrus was it prophesied that he would come. And we find it in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. The Bible says, That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying, Jerusalem, thou shalt be built into the temple, thou foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked place straight. I will break the pieces of the gates brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee treasures of darkness, hidden treasures, hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. And for Jacob, my servant's sake, my Israel, my elect, I have called thee by name. I have surnamed thee that thou hast not known me. Wow. God did that. God did that. Josephus wrote that when Cyrus saw this amazing prediction, written some 150 years before, he was seized with an earnest desire and ambition to fulfill what was so written. Secondly, not only when we disobey God, you begin playing a game you cannot win, God's faithfulness to this word doesn't depend on us understanding it. If you try to understand everything that God tells you to do, you'll never do it. If you try to understand everything God tells you to do, you'll never do it. You think Moses understood exactly what was going on when he was told to cross that Red Sea? You thought Abraham understood exactly what was going on when he was told to take his son, his only son, Isaac, who had been waiting for over 25 years to take him up to Mount Moriah and take his life? You think he understood it? You think Jesus quite totally understood what, it was going, what he was going on when he went into that garden? And wept those great tears. Think he fully understood everything? Think he didn't struggle his humanity and his divinity? Dear friend, there's a lot of people say, well, I just, I can't figure it out. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to believe it. I knew three things when I got saved. 
There's a heaven, there's a hell, and I didn't want to go to hell. That's all I knew. If the Bible's true, and there's a heaven and there's a hell, I didn't want to go that place. And the only way to escape that place is to place your faith in Jesus Christ a lot alone. A lot of people are missing so much because they're afraid, because of fear. And then they're saying, well, I just don't grasp it. I just can't understand it, so I'm not going to do it. That's why God gives us the ability by grace to trust him, to trust him. We should apply this to our own life, apply this to our own life. God set this up 150 years beforehand, and he still worked it out. The final principle that we see here, the supremacy of God prevails over the power of mankind. The supremacy of God prevails over the power of mankind. You can't help but discover here in Ezra chapter 1 that the one in control is God himself. You would think to yourself, well, maybe this is Cyrus who controlled. No, it wasn't Cyrus who controlled. God was controlling Cyrus. Let me tell you, dear friend, God is in control of Russia, and God is in control of China, and God is in control of America, and God is in control of all these things that are happening. Everything that's happening over there in Israel is happening for a reason and a purpose. It's not haphazard. It's not just by chance. It's not happening just because you know, one person thinks, another person thinks. No, God has all this planned out already. He has all the pieces of the puzzle on the board. Oh, we can't see them. But they're there. He's going to work everything out. If he could prophesy 150 years in the past that Cyrus was going to come and deliver his people, don't you think the same thing is true of what he's promised in the rapture of the church? Don't you think the same thing is true after seven years of tribulation? We who are, who are with him, who know him, will come back in the battle of Armageddon. And then we'll begin a thousand-year reign. Rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And after that, Satan will be loose for a little season. He will be, de- he will be destroyed in a, in a great fire. Then ultimately, God will destroy this earth and there will be a new heaven, a new earth. He said, that's hard and impossible to fathom. You think it was hard and impossible to fathom for them Jews to think to themselves, we've been in captivity for all these, all these years. But just like Isaiah said, 70 years. Just like Jeremiah said, 70 years. It happened just like God said it. And dear friend, everything that God says is going to come to pass exactly like he said it. Don't worry about what the news says. Don't worry about what the correspondents say. Don't worry about what the soothsayers say. The Bible says we who know him will someday see him. We'll see him face to face. And not only that, we'll be like him. What a glorious day that will be. What a glorious day that will be. Who's the one who gave him that information? Cyrus. Joseph, Josephus says, and I've studied this and other people say, it was that man, Daniel, who showed Cyrus. Look, look here, Cyrus. It says back here in Isaiah, look at you, there's your name. Can you imagine what Cyrus would have thought? Where'd you get that from? What was that written? Oh, Isaiah, he was before, it was a little while ago. It says here in Isaiah here that you're, you're going to deliver this, this people. And he did. And he did. And dear friend, just, God, just like God delivered his people from bondage, God's going to deliver you 
God, God can deliver you. What are, what are you allowed to take captivity in your life right now? What fear? What struggle? What doubt? What worry? Oh, dear friend, just like the children of Israel, they had to be worried. They had to be afraid. Will I ever get back to our land? Will we stay in captivity forever? They had to trust in the Bible. And what do we have to do every day? It's getting darker. Inflation's going up. Who knows what's going to happen? Trust this book. Trust this book. This book, written from God by God himself, has never failed you, and it never will. What we're going to read and understand, we're going to see the hidden influence of Daniel, the timely influence of Esther, the inheritable role of Zerubbabel, the faithful ministry of Ezra, and the unbending courage of Nehemiah. That's what we're going to see as we study Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And what can we see through those three books? God's sovereignty over man. God is in control. Don't worry. He is in control, and you can trust him. Father, we thank you, God, that you are in control. We can trust you. Just like I'm sure it was chaotic in those days for the Israelites who were in captivity, wondering will they ever go back to their land we wonder, will we ever see a time of peace in our land? Will we ever see a time of unity in our land? Will we ever see joy? Oh, we may not see it here in this place, but we will see it. We'll be in a place where there's no sin, no sorrow, no pain, and no death. You promised that. We'll be in a place where a mansion is provided for us. You promised that. We'll go to a place where there is no sin. We promise that. Dear friend, are you worried tonight? Are you troubled? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Trust what God has provided for you. Trust his word. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ. I encourage you after the church service to come see me. If you're a man, if you're a woman, go see my wife. But if you're here tonight and you, maybe you're struggling with just trusting God, maybe there's something in your life, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's a relationship, maybe something where you just say, I, I can't see no way out of this. I, don't, I can't see a way to repair this relationship. I can't see a way to fix this problem in my life. Would you simply trust in God tonight? Would you simply place all your weight on him tonight say preacher I'm struggling with trusting him in an area of my life would you pray for me anybody raise your hand say would you pray for me anybody like that tonight 